You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. Paul Doroshenko is um, not co-hosting this week, uh, but we have two very interesting and exciting guests. And unlike sort of normal, where we have one guest and we hear their opinion, we actually have uh, Nizer Shijani, who is a uh, forensic toxicologist. And we're going to talk to him about... Um, issues related to uh, absorption and elimination, like I promised last week. But we're also going to talk to him about the Supreme Court of Canada's recent decision in Gubbins, which determined that accused individuals in uh, over 80 cases are not entitled to the historical records for the breathalyzer maintenance. And we're going to hear Nizer's perspective from a toxicological perspective about why that decision is perfectly fine and why he takes no issue with it. But because as I'm sure you can expect, I take issue with the judgment and I do not agree that the uh, records are not relevant um, and necessary. We're also going to hear from Jan Semenov, who is a an expert witness, uh, former member of the Saskatoon police and a member of uh, the DUI Defense Lawyers Association and the editor and uh, founder of Counterpoint Journal. Um, so a very good resource uh, about uh, why they are necessary. So we get two competing opinions, and you can choose who to agree with or who to disagree with. I think you all know, though, where I stand on the issue, because, uh, of course, I am pro-disclosure, pro-historical records, and uh, pro the right to make full answer and defense. So we're going to get right to it with our interview with Nizer. <laughs> Thank you so much to Nizer Shijani for joining us on the Driving Law podcast today. Nizer, it's a real treat to have you here. Um, I've known you for a long time now, um, and you've taught me like so much that I know about impaired driving law. You're kind of my hero. I don't know if I've ever told you that, but there you go. <laughs> so thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to talk to you today about... Um, elimination and absorption of alcohol because uh, as I think I told you before they're changing the criminal code Bill C-46 to put in a provision that will allow the government without having to call an expert witness to extrapolate readings back to the time of driving by just adding 10 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood per hour you're familiar with that right? Yeah I'm familiar with <coughs> with that, but you can't just simply add 10 or whatever you think the elimination rate is without making certain critical assumptions. What are those assumptions? Well, normally in social drinking situation, the peak is reached in about 30 minutes after the end of drinking. So the first assumption one has to make is that there was no alcohol consumed within half an hour. If there is any alcohol consumed within half an hour, that would have to be subtracted. Now, this is under normal social drinking situation. In situations where there is bolus consumption or a large consumption of alcohol in a short period of time, 
And both with social drinking and with the large consumption we have actually conducted in published studies, uh, the peak may not be reached in half an hour. In some cases, it can take over an hour or in some extreme cases up to three hours. And when there is large consumption of alcohol, the level can go up and then plateau. In other words, the rate at which it is being absorbed is the same as that which it is eliminated, and person can stay in a plateau for a significant period of time. Uh, if there is uh, alcohol is consumed with food, it can stay in the stomach for a longer period of time. Okay. Uh, uh, if there are certain medical conditions, uh, certain situation, for example, stress, uh, or if somebody is injured in an accident, uh, and is in a state of clinical shock, uh, the alcohol can stay in the stomach for a long period of time. And with treatment, the, there is a sudden dumping of alcohol from the stomach into the small intestine, and you can have a very rise in, uh, very quick rise in the blood alcohol level. So you could have someone who is under 80 at the time of driving and then get in an accident, have this this delayed absorption of the alcohol and have a dump several hours later and then produce readings that are over 80. Yes, because the, the, the shock can, the treatment or something can, can, can disappear at any time and at this time uh, the alcohol can be dumped from the stomach into into the small intestine, and you can have a very high yeah, alcohol level. Uh, I, you, you just can't take a level, and without making the assumption that you know this was normal drinking situation, there was no drinking within half an hour, and that the once the peak has been reached, the alcohol level was was declining. I agree with the ten milligram percent because the the range is between ten and twenty milligram percent with an average of fifteen milligram percent. But these other critical assumptions have to be made. Right, and so like, what do you what do you think then of this provision? Do you think it's it's scientifically invalid? Do you think that it would withstand a constitutional challenge? Well, I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't <laughs> tell you about that. All I can tell you as a scientist, obviously, without making these assumptions, uh, just adding 10 milligram percent to any level without knowing what had happened prior is uh, scientifically unsound. Now, is there I, a danger in starting from a low al- blood alcohol level and adding 10 milligrams percent? Like, is, is the elimination and absorption curve linear when you get to low levels? No. I mean, once you get below 30 milligram percent, it is not linear, and you can't do back calculations. So the provision that they've drafted, when they first put this into the legislation, they just said any reading and you can add 10. So theoretically, you could blow zero and then they just add it back up. Um, That was obviously pointed out as an obvious problem. So they changed it to say, okay, from 20. Um, So that, I mean, that must raise some concerns scientifically in your mind, starting at a level of 20 and adding. Well, the, the, there are there are some studies that say that uh, I said below thirty, but there are some studies that say that below twenty, it's not linear. So that's not a big concern. But if there's a long time delay, 
without knowing exactly what has happened previously, I mean, it would be scientifically unsound. Okay. Well, there's case law in British Columbia from the Court of Appeal that said you can basically assume that um, most drinking is normal social drinking. From, like, a scientific perspective, is it safe to draw those assumptions? No, you don't know. People drink at different rates in different ways. Right. Uh, Somebody might have a couple of beers socially and then just before leaving the pub may down three or four double shots. I mean, uh, how, how can you tell? Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing. How can you tell unless they testify? Um, and then you, you know, then you're in a situation where you're going to need an expert. Now, did you see the ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada, the recent ruling in Regina and Gubbins, that talked about historical maintenance records for the approved instruments? No, I haven't seen it. Uh, what did it say? Um, basically, that an accused person isn't entitled to historical maintenance records unless they can prove that they are um, likely to be relevant to the case, and they'd require some expert evidence uh, to say that, and that beyond that, you know, if everything checks out on the tickets, then the testing must have been done correctly. Yeah, I, I'm not in favor of historical records, is it? Uh, as it is, because... Every time a sample is taken, there is a standard run, and that is the the proof that the instrument was working properly. So as long as the standard is run, which is a normal scientific method of uh, making sure that the instrument is working properly, I don't have a concern with that. And I, I agree, there's no point in looking at records that something some instrument wasn't working you know, six months ago. Uh, then there are obviously guidelines as to the servicing of the instrument. Uh, there is guidelines uh, or uh, the requirement of when the standard expires, depending on whether it's a gas standard or whether it's a wet pot, uh, that the solutions have to be changed. So basically, what happened during that period of time is, is critical, is, is important, but not not historical records. But what about if there was something wrong when the information about the standard was entered into the instrument? Because, of course, these instruments aren't sentient. They don't know what the expiry date of a gas standard is or what the expiry date of a wet bath standard is. So if there is incorrect data that's told to the instrument, you would only be able to find that out by looking at the historical data to show when that information was told to the instrument in the first place. You know, there is, there is a certificate of an analyst for each sample, which tells you when it was analyzed, what the shelf life is. So if the, 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 the identification number of the cylinder or the standard alcohol is not there, then you, you would want to get that, that certificate of the analyst. Right, but you wouldn't know if it, that if it was wrong, if it was incorrectly entered into the instrument without looking at historical data. Well, the, the, the new instruments, uh, they have the, if, if, if once they enter the standard and they have the expiry date, the instrument will check that it's within the expiry date. Sure, if but what if I write 2019 it, instead of 2018 when I'm entering it? Well, well that, that, that's a human error, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if, if the expiry date doesn't fall within what is required, then the instrument will reject the sample. Right, but it won't it won't detect a human error. 
No, it can detect human error. But don't you think that historical records are relevant to determine whether there was a human error earlier in the process that was carried on through the instrument to the time of testing? No, but you would have a certificate of an analyst saying uh, when it was analyzed, and you know the self life of the cylinder or the alcohol standard in the in the in the in the sim if the wet path in the simulator solution. So that that's really not a big concern to me. So you're not at all concerned about the lack of access to historical records? No, no. When, when In fact, when I'm asked to look at the records, I, I look at the alcohol change uh, uh, requirement, what they have done, the standard change requirement, and uh, that's all that is important. Okay. So going back to um, the back extrapolation, uh, as I understand, there's a paper out there, I think by Dubowski, that talks about how back extrapolation is really not a very good scientific practice to determine blood alcohol level. Uh, yes, there, 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 is a, there is a paper by Dubowski, there is also a paper by Jones, uh, but uh, we have actually done the study and published a paper where we back calculated and said that, you know, it, it, if, if, if anything, it might give you a lower reading. Uh, especially if you use 10 milligram percent. And that's because like 90 to 95% of the population fall within the range of 10 to 20 milligrams percent? That, 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 that's correct. I mean, some people, especially chronic drinkers, may have a higher elimination rate, what? higher than 20. What about people who are inexperienced drinkers? Uh, I haven't seen um, uh, anyone below 10. And the literature, some put down as less than 10, but what they've done is, there is an exper the, 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 the experimental design is wrong, they've just taken two points and say, oh, this is the elimination rate. You well, you can't do it with two points, you no. have to actually do a full graph and then do a, a linear regression to see what the elimination rate is, because an error in each measurement, you just can't do it with two, 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 two readings. So I'm I'm not concerned with 10 and 20 milligram percent, and I know Dubowski has said that, uh, and actually I have had a very heated dis discussion with Dubowski when I was at one of these conferences, uh, and I've discussed this with Jones as well. Uh, so I, I I don't have a concern if it's 10 to 20 milligram percent per hour. Really? Okay, so you're like an advocate for these uh, for these uh, changes. Maybe not an advocate, but uh, you're you're in favor of them. No, I'm not. I didn't say that. I said unless you make certain assumptions, right? And these assumptions has to be proven or shown that they are what the calculations require. Uh, then it's okay. But if you, you can you can't make if you don't make those assumptions and simply take a number and add something to it, uh, that is unscientific. Okay. And so besides, um, you know, the presence of food in the stomach and shock, which you mentioned, and stress, what else can affect um, the way that you absorb alcohol? Well, so some people who have got, uh, for example, have their stomach removed, then in that case, the alcohol goes straight into the small intestine and you get a very rapid rise right away. So like those lap band surgeries, you mean? Yeah, yeah, where part of the stomach is removed. 
Interesting. Can anything affect the way that people um, eliminate alcohol, or does that not change regardless of your... No, the only only thing that will change the elimination is your drinking habits. Uh, generally speaking, uh, chronic drinkers tend to have a higher elimination rate. Uh, they develop tolerance. Uh, they may appear normal at very blood high blood alcohol levels. However, tolerance can disappear if somebody abstains from drinking for four to six weeks. Really? So that's all it takes to eliminate your tolerance? Generally, yeah, because uh, not in all cases, but uh, but generally as a rule, because what happens is the people with the higher elimination rate, a secondary enzyme system, is it kicks in. Hmm. And uh, this is why you get higher elimination rate. It's the body's way of protecting a person. Interesting. What about um, uh, what about like blood alcohol level? Because I mean, I see a lot of cases with very what what would be considered very high readings, like high two hundreds, low three hundreds. Um, the highest reading I've seen is four eighty six. Um, but they're also lowering the both the legal limit from above eighty to at or above eighty. And they're lowering the statutorily aggravating limit of 160 down to 120. What do you think about that? No, oh, I, 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 I think as far as impairment is concerned, everybody is impaired at 100 milligram percent. Okay. Okay. Uh, 80 came out because in the 1950s, I think there was a study done in Ontario. I think it was called uh, Caldwell and Smith, if, if I remember correctly. And uh, they did a driving test, and they found that at 80, uh, I think 51% of the people were not able to drive properly. So that's where the 80 came in. And I have, I have no quarrel about 80 uh, as a legal limit. But it's, as far as impairment goes, uh, uh, then I think it, it, it's still 100. Now, you have to remember that impairment is different from intoxication. Impairment is when you compare your norm with when you are at 100, degree, 100 milligram percent. Intoxication is when you start to see outward symptoms of intoxication, such as slurred speech, balance problems, uh, high reading, I have uh, actually, when I was at the RCMP, I had seen a reading and I had to go to testify on this case where somebody, actually, I think it was a young girl who blew 420, or who had a blood reading of 420. Wow. Uh, I had a call from Victoria uh, that, uh, I think it was a newspaper or something, somebody was caught driving at 450 and was not showing much symptoms. So, yeah, people with high tolerance can appear normal, but that does not mean they are not impaired. Right. But what about, like, lowering, like, in the criminal code, there's an aggravated limit, so you can expose yourself to potential for greater penalties if your blood alcohol level is 160 or above currently. And they're lowering that 160 number down to 120. Do you think if impairment starts at 100, scientifically, and 120 is only a small amount above that, is lowering the aggravating um, limit to 120 scientifically sound? 
Yeah, I have no problem with it. I mean, I mean, you can't be little impaired. I mean, either you are impaired or you're not impaired. <laughs> so you can't be a little impaired. You're just you're impaired or not impaired. You're not really impaired or slightly impaired. No, you are imp- Once you're impaired, you're impaired. Period. It doesn't matter whether you are at hundred, hundred and ten, or hundred and twenty, or two hundred, or three hundred. Well, then why not make the aggravating limit one hundred? It seems to be. Well, they can if they want to. It seems arbitrary then. Uh, the 120 is arbitrary. I don't think 100 is arbitrary. No, I and and but what about at or above 80 as opposed to above 80? Uh, uh, that seems arbitrary too, given what you've said. No, no, no. I didn't. I said that they found that at 80, there were more likelihood of people getting uh, having their driving adversely affected, and that's where the 80 came from. Sure, but I that's fifty-one percent. If 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 you're looking at fifty-one percent, that's balance of probabilities, not beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, but it, it, it's more like, well. One thing you can say for sure that have, being at eighty is not going to improve your driving ability. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I okay. will agree with that. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, the best thing is don't drink and drive. Period. <laughs> um, okay. Is there anything that people need to know if they're in a situation where they've been, like from a scientific perspective, where they've been pulled over and it's taking a long time to take their breath samples? Anything that you think people need to know either to keep in mind or to remember or evidence that they need to preserve to put together the best scientific sort of case? for? Uh, uh, I, I think they have to be truthful to the police. Uh, if they have receipts of what they have consumed and when they have consumed, keep them. Uh, if they suspect that the instrument at the detachment is giving a false reading, they should go to a hospital and get a blood drawn. Okay. All right. That's the the last part I'll agree with. I uh, I will differ with you from a legal perspective on being truthful with police. Don't say anything to the police is my legal advice. But um, you're giving scientific advice, not legal advice. So that's um, that's helpful. Thank you for taking the time out of your day, Nizer, to share these insights. I know we don't agree on everything, um, but I think it's important for everyone who listens to this podcast to understand where the science is behind this legislation and what parts of the legislation are not scientifically sound and what parts maybe are, despite the fact that we might disagree with them from a philosophical or a legal perspective. So, Well, I think we disagree on legal principle. I think oh, you scientifically are. you shouldn't disagree with me. I can't disagree with you scientifically. You're the expert. <laughs> But uh, but legally, you and I will continue to agree to disagree, and uh, that's why we have so much fun. So and you'll be wrong. And <laughs> I'm never no, wrong. I'm it's kidding. my podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know you are. Oh, thank thank you, Nizer, for taking the time this afternoon to chat with me about this. And All right. if people want to reach out to you, can they hire you directly, or do they have to go through a lawyer? They have to go through. A, they have to go, go through, through a lawyer. lawyer. All right. So. If you are interested in retaining the services of Nizer Shijani for your criminal or your civil, he also does civil trials, uh, matter, please contact me, uh, 604-685-8889, and I will um, work to uh, put you in touch with Nizer and his services.
Now we are joined by Jan Semenov. Jan is a former member of the Saskatoon Police Service. He was trained by the RCMP as well and a, a qualified technician when it comes to approved instruments for breath testing at police detachments. And Jan is also the editor and the founder of Counterpoint Journal, which is if uh, anybody is interested in academic and scientific uh, literature talking about um breath testing and impaired driving counterpoint is probably the uh the leading journal uh in the area lots of articles contributed by some very amazing uh defense counsel across the um across north america and so jan is an expert uh how how many jurisdictions jan have you been qualified in probably about 25 now primarily in the united states okay and do you do you testify ever in canada anymore or when I get asked to, sure. I mean, I've testified in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, and in Ontario. Wow. Plus, okay. given testimony by, uh, by Skype into the territories, too. Now, before I started recording, I was telling you about the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Govins that um, said that people aren't entitled to historical maintenance records for breathalyzers. And the reason that I'd asked you on the podcast was because you had just actually published a series of articles in CounterPoint about why historical records and and disclosure in relation to the functioning of the breath testing equipment is so important. So I thought it would be interesting to hear your perspective on that in light of what the Supreme Court of Canada has recently said. The reason I wrote those articles is because I get a lot of requests from defense lawyers asking for, you know, what sort of things do I ask for in discovery and why are they important? And so we put those articles together to explain uh, the importance of all of those records. And so when it comes to um, records that we get in Canada, what you get sort of as the, as the ordinary disclosure is the information about the testing at the time it happens. So you get the certificate of qualified technician, you get the breath test tickets that set out information about the alcohol standards. I mean, you've seen them before. Um, you used to fill them out back when you had to do them by hand. Um, and uh, the, the, that's about all we get. Sometimes you can get personal logs of the technician, um, you can get the recertification um, records to show that the technician was still certified, and you can get the alcohol standard change um, records and the certificate of an analyst for the alcohol standard. But there's a lot more than that that actually exists in relation to breathalyzer maintenance records. Is that right? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, the, the ones that you were just talking about, the kind of the standard discovery that comes along in Canada, you know, attached to a certificate of analysis, analysis um, includes things like the breath test ticket that shows that there was um, a wait period between the two tests, that the air blanks were done, that the test record is free of any error messages, that we've got two good test results within 20 milligrams of one another, the calibration check is within range, and, and basically a printout that shows no operational errors, no in instrumentation errors. And that's fine. We need all of those things, but there's a lot more to discovery because any of those, what I refer to as the big six, those, those things we just discussed, don't necessarily establish reliability of a breath testing device or breath testing occurrence. And you have to keep in mind that reliability is a systems event. It's not a one-off. Reliability takes a look at the overall accuracy and precision of the instrument itself, but also the, um, the reliability of the breath tests that are generated 
as a system or systemic whole, which includes the training of the operator, the maintenance of the device, even the conditions of the room that the testing was performed in. So right. all of those things are critical as well. And so uh, when you hear that the Supreme Court of Canada sort of released this judgment that that says that this, this material is not relevant um, and doesn't assist you in establishing a defense or, or proving evidence to the contrary or, um, I guess, rebutting the presumption, um, what, uh, I mean, what do you say to that as an expert in this area with all the knowledge you have and having recently published on it? Well, not only as a working expert, but also as a former investigator. I mean, I think it's important that we can establish, and I, let's just take it from an investigator's point of view, me as a, as, a, as a qualified technician now. I really want to be able to establish when I'm going into court with that certificate of analysis that there are underpinnings, there are underlying factors that, that go towards the overall reliability of the breath test results. Um, and, and in doing so, you're able to rely on as I say, these other records like the facility inspection records, training records, things of that nature that show that, you know, inherently the results are going to be perceived as being reliable. Now, as an expert for the defense, obviously you take the, the contrary position to that. Um, show me uh, evidence that tends to point towards the unreliability of, of the breath test results. And it's only by taking a look at the historical records, whether they're, then there's two different types of historical records that are really critical. Number one are the maintenance and calibration records of the uh, evidentiary device, or even the roadside screening device, the ASD um, themselves. And additionally, the operational or the usage logs that show how the device has actually been um, put into play and how it's generating good or not good results, as the case may be. Okay. So I really take, I take, well, I take a look at really those operational logs as being critical, but of course the maintenance records are, are critical as well. Now, when you were working as a qualified technician, were you using the BAC Datamaster C or what, what instrument were you using? Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I know I'm you're trained on a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in Canada, I'm, I'm trained as an instructor in the U.S. on most of the instruments that are out there, but... In Canada, I was originally qualified by the RCMP on the breathalyzer model 900A, which oh. is, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just, just tipped my hand on my, you know, if you cut me in half and count my rings, you now know how old I am. Um, <laughs> if I was, and, but there was a lot of advantages to using that particular device, and I think it's important to take a look at that one in historical context. Then I was trained on the intoxilizer. 5000C, which is the Canadian version of the Intoxilizer 5000 from the U.S. Um, and, it, you know, it, each one of those instruments had their, their benefits and their drawbacks. Um, but really, if we go back to the maintenance records of those devices, you have to keep in mind that a, a breath test subject is providing a relatively dirty air sample from their lungs. Mm -hmm. It's contaminated with spit and saliva and grody stuff that is kept in a warm chamber on the inside of that device that basically becomes a petri dish. And mold and uh, contamination can grow with on the inside of that instrument. So it has to be adequately maintained and calibrated. It's an electronic device. The new ones are. They drift over time. And those sorts of things are really, really important to take a look at.
Right. I mean, the ones that's used across Canada now is the Intox ECIR2, and that does the analysis using a fuel cell. And I think historical maintenance records are so important when it comes to something like fuel cell analysis, because you need to know um, when that fuel cell was last replaced, because they have a finite lifespan. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I also have to keep in mind how that ECIR2 works. EC stands for electrochemical, so that's the fuel cell component. And the IR is an infrared detector that's built into it as well. Yeah. So when the ECIR2 is taking a breath sample, it's using the infrared component to establish that it's receiving a suitable sample. It's a sample that hasn't been contaminated um, by any sort of mouth alcohol contamination that may be present. Right. And then once that determination has been made, then the sample is analyzed by the fuel cell. And it's really helpful that to kind of understand how a fuel cell works and, and think about its limitations. First of all, they're only about the size of a, a loony in terms of diameter and maybe slightly thicker in thickness than a loony, more like a toonie perhaps. Um, and, and basically what they are is a ceramic disc that's been saturated in a, uh, a sulfuric acid solution. And that solution oxidizes the, the alcohol that's in the breast sample and creates an electrical current. Every time that sample it's introduced, a sample is introduced to the device, some of the chemical in that fuel cell is depleted. And after a while, the fuel cell starts to kind of sputter and die on its own. So we need to know, number one, how many tests have been performed on that device? Number two, how many tests have been performed on that device, not just overall, but since the last time it was recalibrated, because the unit will start to produce a lower electrical current as that electrolytic solution is, is depleted. And then you have to go in there and recalibrate and say, okay, and you're now producing a lower electrical current, but what you were thinking was a 100 milligram reading, we're gonna have to readjust that so it's truly a 100 milligram reading. So that drift over time is really critical. And then here's the, the worst part about a fuel cell device. At the end of their serviceable life, they have a tendency to sputter and die. Mm -hmm. And then they start producing erratic readings. So you might get a reading of 60 milligrams with a 100 calibration solution, and then the next reading would be 140 milligrams and 150 milligrams, and then down to 70 milligrams. Now, what, so what do you say then to the people who say, well, the device is running a blank check, and it's testing the standard to test the calibration, and then it's testing the breast sample, and then it's running another blank check to ensure that there's no remaining alcohol. What do you say to people who say that's enough of a safeguard to confirm that there is no, um, that there is no problem with the fuel cell? Well, it's a start, but it's not really very, uh, very complete. And the problem is that the manufacturers themselves have kind of shot themselves in their own feet because what they're doing is they're employing a thing called a floating zero air blank. Um, we can expect that there's going to be a certain amount of contamination either in the room or coming from the breath test subject or somebody's wearing <laughs> Axe cologne or something like that. Um, we expect that some of that uh, you should maybe bleep out the name of the, of the cologne. Uh, we, should, we could expect that some of that stuff could actually create a false positive. And so in order to um, ensure that you, you're not dealing with all these ambient fails all the time, the breath test manufacturers build, and ECIR2 is no different, oh, it's a concept of a floating zero air blank. So there's a, there's a threshold that is allowable, and it's typically set at 9 milligrams or 009 grams. So if we see eight or nine milligrams of contamination there, the unit just calls it zero, and it subtracts it. 
they say it might be even subtracting it from the ultimate reading that's obtained, but we don't know because we haven't seen the software or the source code for that, those devices. Right, and that's another so that, thing that you can't get. Right, yeah. So, I mean, all of a sudden, if you don't have an air blank that's truly a zero because an arbitrary amount has been um, uh, erased from, from the evidentiary pattern there, evidentiary records, then we don't really know uh, what that air blank is like, and, and that renders the concept of an air blank absolutely useless. And it's funny, in some jurisdictions, Colorado particularly, they were getting a lot of air blanks that were high. And so their choice was not to fix the problem and make the contamination go away, but to increase the threshold from 9 milligrams to 21 milligrams before the unit would report that there was an ambient condition that was substandard. Right. So they, in essence, just hit everything underneath the rug. Well, yeah, and it, well, that, with and that's the whole thing, right? Like maintenance is is often looking at what's under that rug, getting those records, and 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 seeing there is seeing what's under the rug. It I think it poses a huge catch twenty two problem when you can't see what's in the records because you can't get them in order to explain why the records are relevant to to rebutting the presumptions in any given case. Oh, Kyla, you're absolutely correct on that, but there's more to it. And this is the point that I was trying to make in these three articles. The, the idea is that if someone is actually maintaining these records, then ostensibly they're looking at the records, right? They're not just filing these things away for discovery that nobody cares about. Somebody should actually be going through these inspection records, maintenance records, and stuff like that, and taking a look at the historical performance of the device. You can start to see, when I get access to these records in the U.S., I can start to see when a unit is about to fail. I can tell you within three weeks when the unit is going to go out of calibration because I can take a look at the trends on the performance of the device. Mm -hmm. So not only does the device, do the records give you insight into how it's functioning, but you've also got now somebody at least acting as an independent auditor. And I don't mean the defense expert. I mean someone in the police department or someone in the state crime lab or the, or the police agency, the RCMP, or even the people that are doing independent maintenance, like, you know, DAFCHEC or whoever. Any of these companies then would be doing kind of an independent third-party audit and saying, you know, the, the program is working fairly well, but it's not working. We need to maybe fix up, um, you know, the Richmond detachment is getting a lot of ambient sales, as an example, and I'm just making that up. Um, but maybe we should get in there and make sure the Richmond detachment restroom gets cleaned a little bit better. And so it's it's really interesting when you take a look at those operational logs and maintenance records, what you discover. Yeah. Um, this is another one that maybe is kind of off point because it's more of an operational log matter. But a lot of times I'll get um, a police report back and they'll indicate, well, you know, test subject refused a breath test. And you go through and take a look at the operational logs for the last year or so. And a couple of times I've discovered that, you know, with that particular breath test operator, always seems to have a refusal. Now, either this particular operator is, is having just really bad luck with the arrests that come before him, or he's generating, he or she are generating those refusals themselves because they don't want to do the breath test, they don't care about it, or they just think it's an easier way of, of getting the charge before the courts. And it's only by taking a look at those kind of records that we discover those very historically important. And I would say you know, in terms of evidence of the contrary, very critical bits of evidence. Right. I mean, we had for a while in BC an issue with our BAC Data Master Cs um, that was ultimately discovered through looking at historical maintenance records that the five-way valve um, 
was sticking. And so you'd get frequent invalid samples, which would, would occur when the device detected mouth alcohol and aborted the test. Um, but right. basically alcohol from the standard was being introduced into the sample chamber at really high, uh, at really high rates. And that was only something that, that we were able to discover after looking at the historical maintenance records and seeing, well, why are there so many invalids? And then looking at the instrument and going, oh, okay, looking at these components, this explains what this problem is. And it turns out that that was, in fact, the problem, and now we have the ECIR, too. Right. Yeah, and, and it, again, looking at those historical records, let's just go a little bit north and up into Alaska. I worked on a file up in Alaska where it turned out that the, um, the state lab was making up their own dry gas mixture to do calibration. <laughs> I don't know why they, I guess, but they ended up um, dividing one integer instead of multiplying by one integer when they were doing the calculations on how to prepare the dry gas standard and ended up calibrating the units about 20 milligrams, 25 milligrams too low. So a person really has a reading of, say, 05 or 06, that unit was now showing a true blood alcohol reading of 09 or 10. Right. And then problem is, of course, you do, and then let's go back, you said, okay, so how do you answer the question about the calibration check that was in within the acceptable range? Well, the, in this particular case, the calibration standard used was inaccurate, and it was only by going back and taking a look at the maintenance records that they were able to discover that, and hundreds of tests. Right, and, and the alcohol standards that are used, whether they're gas or, or wet bath standards, have expiry dates. They're not supposed to be used after a certain number of, of samples. They're supposed to be maintained at a consistent pressure. All of those things, the you know, the pressure gauges in the instrument and um, and the, uh, I mean, the temperature at which things are stored, these are all things you would expect to see in the maintenance records that speak directly to the reliability of, of a client's readings. But now, you know, the law in Canada is you're not entitled to this, which I think just completely erodes the, the concept of full disclosure. You know, I was, uh, I was a wine officer when Stinchcomb first came out, and we kind of thought it was going to be the end of criminal prosecutions because we had to provide the playbook. And ultimately what happens, in, at least in my case, is I didn't get a lot of overtime anymore because the defense lawyers took a look at my report um, I considered myself fairly uh, particular in, in doing a good job and making sure I was, you know, not writing yellow light tickets or the equivalent. And and, and the court time kind of went away. And, and Stinchcomb, everybody was treating it initially as a pariah. I actually think that that that, that transparency is is critical because it establishes basically that things are being done right. Things are being done reliably breath results are reliable. And again, it's a system that produces reliability. And so, you know, when you take a look at facility inspection records, I, I was, again, for the CounterPoint article, I dug back through some files. I once did a uh, facility inspection in Pennsylvania, and it was about 2008 or 2009 when we did the, um, 2009 we did the inspection. And the date on the, um, the simulator jar it had been calibrated last time in January of 2000. So the device itself that's proving the reliability of the instrument, the simulation of the, of the using that simulator jar, hadn't been calibrated in nine years. And you've got to keep in mind, it has to have temperature control within 0.2 degrees Celsius in order to be considered accurate. 
you don't find this kind of stuff out by taking a look at a breath test ticket. You don't find this stuff kind of out by taking a look at a certificate of an analyst. You have to dig down and get the training records, the operational logs, the maintenance records, and then start looking at the arcane things like who's actually certifying these solutions. Mm-hmm. There's been nightmares in Pennsylvania and Virginia and, as I discussed, in Alaska where the calibration standards weren't even being adequately employed. So <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, if you've got a substandard act, a substandard practice, or a substandard condition, your breath test results are substandard. And, and as an investigator, I can't rely upon a substandard result, but as a finder of facts, as a trier of facts, I don't believe the courts can really rely upon a substandard result beyond a reasonable doubt. No, I, I, only by, I would agree. <laughs> only by taking a look at those records that we can find out if things were at a substandard level or not. So I'm assuming after this podcast that lots of people are going to want to reach out to you to see if you can come give evidence because the Supreme Court of Canada did leave open the door for people introducing expert evidence to explain why the additional maintenance records would be necessary. Um, How can they reach you? How can people get in touch with you? Well, I don't know how you're doing your podcast. If you can um, distribute my email address, that'd be fine. Yeah, just uh, what's what's your email? People can take it down. I'll also put uh, it on the, best, the post. The best one is Jan Semenoff, all one word, J-A-N-S-E-M-E-N-O-F-F at me, M-E dot com. Or you can go to the Counterpoint Journal website, which is counterpoint-journal.com. Um, there's some free issues there to take a look at, some free articles to take a look at. And in Volume 3, we've just done a whole series of stuff on on discovery requests, and on error messages. Perfect. Um, Really good stuff to take a look at. Excellent. And uh, if somebody wanted to subscribe to CounterPoint, they can go to the CounterPoint website. What does a subscription cost? Um, There's there's two pricing structures set up. It's $99 uh, U.S. for a year's subscription. And it, it goes from volume to volume. So, I mean, you could subscribe at the end of the volume and have access all the way back to the beginning of that particular volume. If you join the DUI DLA, the DUI Defense Lawyers Association of the United States, which I believe is like $200 a year, then CounterPoint is included as a member benefit. Perfect. So everyone should join the DUI DLA and subscribe to CounterPoint. (laughs) And uh, if you need to reach out to Jan to retain him as an expert or uh, with any questions about breathalyzers, he's a fantastic uh, resource and I highly recommend it. Thank you very much, Jan, for taking the time to explain why this decision was not correct today. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Kyla. Look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks in San Francisco. (laughs) Hopefully. All right. Thank you for joining us. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you to both Nizer and Jan for joining me this week and presenting their sort of contrary views on these two issues. It was a very interesting episode, and I like the idea of having a little bit more debate on the podcast, maybe a little bit why Paul and I um, don't host every week because we're kind of an expert chamber or echo chamber for one another. Um, 
But uh, if you want to reach out to either Nizer or Jan, uh, you can get in touch with me or get in touch with them directly. Uh, they're both excellent resources and uh, can help your case depending which side of the fence you're on. So thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation. You can reach us at 604-685-8889 or uh, give us a, a, a look online at vancouvercriminallaw.com.